In the nine verses that are ahead of us this morning that we're going to study together, there really are two paramount themes that emerge. One is the promise of heaven, and the other is the transfiguration of Christ. Now, both are paramountly important in the life of every Christian, and both are intimately connected, as we will see as we go on, intimately connected to each other. Peter could see the spiritual horizon that was coming. We've mentioned it before several times in case you missed it. He knows that he is going to die. And so he is endeavoring to leave those last and final and important words to every uh, believer that will come across his text, that will read his scroll, that will uh, infiltrate into the, the churches all throughout the history of the church until the coming of Christ himself. And because he could see the horizon, he knew that there was soon to come uh, followers that would depart from the faith. There would be those that just kind of walk away from this glorious salvation that they had in Christ. And the reason that they would walk away is because there was also going to be false teachers teaching false doctrines that would drive them away. And this second letter uh, is an expose of how to prepare against that as we go on further in the book. But it is clear that both of those items, believers that walk away from the faith and teachers that teach false doctrine are a shipwreck to Christendom. And with these things in mind, he introduces uh, some sound theology here that is both practical and powerful that we pick up beginning in verse 10. And so I'll draw your attention to that. We read it together. As Peter writes, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. It goes without saying, but I will say it, that the word therefore points backwards, right? We've come to know that and understand that just in our simple Bible reading. You ever come to that word, it means back up and read again what was in front of it. So he is saying, in light of the things that God has given every believer to start out with in faith, and we've been uh, unpacking that and dwelling on that for several weeks, that in verses 1 through 3, God starts out by giving each believer faith, his power, all things that pertain to life and godliness, exceedingly great and precious promises, the means by which to share in a divine nature, and the promise of an escape of worldly corruption. I mentioned that last time. 
God says, here, this is what I'm giving you as you come to faith. And then Peter says to the believer, as we studied last week, kind of in detail, now I want you all to add to your faith in verses 5 through 8, these characteristics, these elements, I've called them ingredients for fruitful Christian living, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And he puts a, uh, a parenthesis there, or he underscores it, makes it bold. You know how you go to a computer and you can highlight and make it bold and underline it and all of that? Well, Peter kind of does that in verse 8 when he says, and if these things are yours and abound. In other words, they are a part of your life in a large capacity. He promises you'll never be barren. The word of God promises, Peter makes it clear, that the Christian who owns those things and that they are plentiful in their life will never be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's like, sign me up, Lord. Yes, I, me, I want that. And it's as though he knows how forgetful we are, so he puts the word therefore in verse 10. And he moves on to what we would call uh, a paramountly important act, if you will. In verse 5, he said, be diligent to add. In verse 10, he says, be even more diligent. He's underscoring it. I, the strength upon which he's inviting and saying these things is, is powerful to me. And he says, be even more diligent to what? To make your call and your election sure. Make your call and election sure in your heart. Because if you look at humankind, if you look at people, if you look at history, it is possible for unsaved individuals to do right and moral and good things. Those Things don't just belong to the Christian family or to the body of Christ. We have humanitarian acts going on in a large capacity from anything from corporate offices to you name it. But Peter is addressing the heart. And as one commentator, he said, these things that he's referring to in verse uh, 8, if you do these things, you will never um, be, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was talking about the things of the heart, that it would be evident that an individual had had a second birth, was born again, and that if we are born again, it shows in our lives. Spurgeon, when writing about making 
the call and the election sure, he put it this way. He says, uh, it will be asked, however, why is calling here put before election, seeing election is eternal and calling takes place in time? Question mark. He answers it and says, I reply because calling is first to us. The first thing which you and I can know is our calling. We cannot tell whether we are elect until we feel and know that we are called. We must first of all prove our calling and then our election is sure and most certain. And so this is what Peter gets at here. He says, Make your call and your election sure. Now, when he says, if you do these things, he, of course, is incorporating what we studied last week from verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. But when he comes to 10 and he's saying to uh, do these things, he's including that absolute confidence that you know that you know that you are saved, that Christ is your Lord, that he has saved you from the penalty of sin, promised you heaven, and that you're going to heaven when you die. Do you know that this morning? Are you convinced of it beyond any shadow of a doubt? Because it's critical as we embrace the idea of a fruitful Christian life, and fruit has many sides to it. I've known some plums and apples to be bruised. But it's critical to having a fruitful life that the Christian not question their salvation. Because there's a powerful promise in that. Do you see it in verse 10? He says, if you do these things, all of what's 5 through 7, all of what's in 8, and what's in 10, by making your call and election sure, he says, you will never stumble. Underline that. Highlight it. Mark it on the Bible of the person next to you. What a powerful promise. That you'll never stumble. How many of you this morning, and don't, Raise your hands, but how many of you this morning know of Christians that have stumbled throughout their journey with Christ? Further, how many of us here this morning have stumbled occasionally in our walk with the Lord? more than likely each of us would say, yes, I do know someone, or yes, I have. I know I would say that. And yet, here's this powerful promise. You'll never stumble. Oh, give me the secret, Lord. What's, what's the key to unlock this thing that, that I'll never stumble? Well, he's... There are two things to remember here. All that's been spoken of before in verses 5 through 8 and 9 and what's been spoken in verse 10a, the front part of it, knowing beyond any shadow of a doubt that Christ loves me and I'm going to heaven. And then a second part is understanding the word stumble. 
Interestingly enough, the King James Version of the Bible translates this word fall. And if you do these things, you will never fall. Now, I like pulling out a, a book or two off the shelf whenever I can, a Greek lexicon. I can't read Greek. I don't know Greek, but I can read the books that tell us how. And what the instructional information in the Greek lexicon tells us about this word, fall or stumble, is very critical to understanding the promise. It is what we call in Greek an indefinite adverb. I know it's a big word. It's a big word for me. But as I was combing through this, how can I understand this, Lord? How can we relate to this? Why is this important? Listen, careful, because an indefinite adverb in the Greek language means this, quote, if you're writing, in a certain way or at length. Let me restate it, in a certain way or at length. So the promise of the word of God here in verse 10 is that, again, if 5 through 7 apply to my life and verse 8 applies to my life and verse 10a is is owned by me in my heart of hearts, then I will never stumble or fall in a certain way or at length by way of continuing. Does that make sense to me? That's beautiful. That's like, hallelujah. I might stumble in one way, but I'm not going to continue to stumble in a certain way. And I might, you know, trip up here and there, but sooner or later, those little trips are going to go away and I won't continue doing them. I hope that makes sense to you this morning. Because that is so necessary in the life and the understanding of every one of us as believers. Because which one of us hasn't maybe at some point in our Christian journey thought we've, oh man, we've really disappointed the Lord. I don't know if I can get back into his graces or not. And then he wraps his gracious and loving arms around us and says, no, my daughter, my son, I love you. And gives us this word in Peter's letter of how to move on past those places that were continual and that were lengthy. Promise, big promise, a big God, an inspired word that is true. So we move now to the promise of heaven. I like what someone once said, that there's only one way to get to heaven, right? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. You could probably recite that verse verbatim with me, right? You've been walking with the Lord a while. You know there's no other way to get to heaven. There's only one way to get to heaven, but there are two ways that a Christian can arrive there. He said, what are you talking about, Art? Well, look at verse 11 when he says, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly 
into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When I read that, I thought, man, you know what? Any entrance would be more than I deserve. But an abundant entrance? Wow. Peter is saying to them, in these things that I'm writing to you, there is a promise of an abundant entrance, in other words, a glorious entrance, uh, uh, the saints waiting for you and, and delighting in you when you come, rather than arriving like one as through fire. 1 Corinthians 3.15 tells us, and I don't know if we have it up there or not, I'll read it for you. It says... Each one's work will become clear. When we talk about our lives being built on the foundation of Christ alone. It says, each one's work will become clear for the day, notice capital D, that's, that's the day either Christ comes or the day we enter his presence, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. In other words, when I came to Christ, began living my life, what were the things uh, that oozed from my life and that I built my life upon? Verse 14 says, If anyone's work which he has built on, it endures, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. So, as I said, there's only one way to heaven, but there's two ways that we can arrive. One is a, a glorious applauding and welcoming of the saints, saying, yeah, you're coming, great, glad you're here. And the other one is we just scoot in by the beat of our band with everything burning off of us. Which way do you want to enter? To which you might just say, I don't care. I just want to make sure I go, you know. <laughs> okay. Yes, heaven is better than the alternative. I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> and Siri, you never will. Is that my phone? Who is that? Boy, that was unique, wasn't it? Talking about the gospel, and Siri says, I don't think I understand. <laughs> F.B. Mayer wrote this. He said that um, this is the idea, Peter's communicating the idea of a Roman conqueror coming into his city, welcomed by singers and musicians who would join him in a glorious, happy procession into the city. That's what I want, beloved. That's, I know in your heart that's what you want. And so, again, the, the importance of these things that Peter has written about a fruitful Christian life. And that if we do these things, as we've been reading through this passage over the last several weeks, uh, we've brought to our attention 
verses 12 uh, through 15, which in those verses, 12, 13, 14, and 15, uh, Peter first establishes that he knows that those who are reading his letter are Christians. He's writing to believers. And those that are reading this, you know, he's not necessarily dealing with the unsaved. He's talking to believers. And he's saying, though I know you're established, though you know, you see it there in, in verse, uh, verse 12. Uh, this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. It's interesting that word established is the same word that Jesus used when he said to Peter, uh, knowing that Peter would fall away, he, in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, 32, Jesus said to him, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. That word strengthen is the same word as established here. And Peter is fulfilling. He's fulfilling that command that Jesus gave him in strengthening the brother, brethren in his letter and reminding them. But notice in these uh, verses 12 through 15, he, he reminds for three times. I'm going to, to remind you, reminding you, and a reminder. Now, I've spoken about this briefly before, but let me underscore it again this morning. In the Christian life, knowing is never the same as simply being. Knowing verses, knowing scripture, knowing the general gospel message it does not necessarily equate to being intimately connected with a resurrected Savior who is guiding and directing your life. Have you ever met someone that, so oh yeah, well, I know that verse. People can recite John 3.16 they have no idea who God is. And my point is, or Peter's point, is that though I know you're established in this present truth, I'm going to remind you, I'm reminding you, I'm giving you a reminder. Why? Well, think of a sports team this morning. Not your favorite sports team that you're going to go watch after church, just any sports team. What happens when a sports team is uh, working for a championship, right? I mean, they do this regularly, but when the championship is on the line... It's amazing to watch them basically just go through the fundamentals over and over and over again. They repeat those fundamentals until they're second nature. Why? Because they know if the fundamentals are second nature, that victory is more assured. And this is what Peter's talking about, the fundamentals of the Christian life. And for this reason, we, as uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we who are walking with God, we who um, grace the doors of a church or break open the Bible in our living rooms, when we hear the gospel message and the word of God teach us about Christ, it should, it should always be a rejoicing thing to us. 
We should never tire of it, as one commentator says. Here's, here's this fundamental so far, is that we know what God has given us, that we know what we're to add, that we know what happens when those things abound in our life, why we would make our call and election sure, that we remember there's an abundant entrance awaiting us, though we know and are established. Those are fundamentals in this Christian life. Well, in verse 16, Peter uses the word for. If you read it with me, verse 16, Peter says, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so the question might emerge, how does, uh, Peter moves into, again, uh, declaring that he was there when Jesus was transfigured. And the question may come, how does the transfiguration of Jesus connect the believer to Peter's reminder of the basics of the fundamentals in Christian life? Answer, it's, it's the sureness of the apostolic testimony. It's the sureness of the apostolic testimony. In other words, they were there. Peter, James, and John, they were there. They saw him transfigured. Now, we have a few minutes. I'm going to invite you to turn backwards in your Bible to Luke chapter 9. Keep your finger in 2 Peter chapter 1. Luke chapter 9. Uh, this account is in uh, three of the Gospels total, Matthew 17 being one of them, Mark another, but I, I love Luke's account of it. Luke chapter 9, we read that a certain day, on a certain day, beginning at verse 20, who appeared in glory and spoke of his, Jesus' decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Verse 32. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened that as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Here him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days 
any of the things that they had seen. Here in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, Peter is finally talking about that event. He is willing to say, I and John and James, we were eyewitnesses of his glory. And the account in Luke tells us that, you know, Peter, perhaps not unlike others in his day, was ready to make, you know, a tabernacle for not only Jesus, but Elijah and Moses and, and put them on the same playing field. Uh, it's good that we're here. Let's, let's listen to each one and every one to kind of get our full scale understanding of, of this God that we're seeking to follow and, and how confusing that can be if there's going to be many voices that you're trying to listen to. Although those are scriptural voices and, and the Old Testament does testify of Christ. But the father knew that what Peter was endeavoring to do, it went against what that moment was all about. That moment was not about Elijah and about Moses. That moment was about Jesus being revealed in his glory, testifying that he is who he says he is. And mankind often wants to uh, alter that. Mankind wants to massage that. Mankind wants to, you know, add things to that. And the father knew, said, no, Peter, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so Peter reaccounts, if you go back to 2 Peter, he accounts in verse 16 that they were eyewitnesses. And because they were eyewitnesses, the sureness of their testimony, they didn't follow, notice there in verse 16, cunningly devised fables. In the original language and in that day, the word is mythos. Peter is saying, we didn't, we didn't follow myths. And some people look at the Bible as a, as a myth. Some look at it as a combination of good stories. They may even uh, admire it to some degree, uh, but consider it a, a myth when Peter is underscoring the fact that, no, this is not a myth. It is history, and I'm an eyewitness to it. The strongest thing in a court of law is what? An eyewitness. The thing that holds up in a court of law to the veracity of the truth of the statement that's being made of the truth claim is an eyewitness. And God the Father, through his servant Peter, here is declaring to every believer that when the gospel message begins to become uh, an issue of debate about whether it's right, whether it's wrong, is it true, is it not true, Peter is saying, I'm an eyewitness. Everything absolutely is true of Christ. That, to me, is powerful. And as he closes, he says, For 
He received from God, speaking of Jesus, verse 17, from God the Father, honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Luke records it for us that God was saying, hear him, listen to him. And maybe that's what we would simply walk away with this morning as we begin to kind of wind up those uh, things regarding fruitful Christian living. That it starts with, is held together with, and ends with us hearing the voice of the Son of God. Calling to each one of us when we were lost to become saved. When we are troubled to know his peace. When we need direction to hear his guidance. When we need to declare his truth, the words in which he would say. To listen to him. And how beautiful that voice is. How lovely is the voice of our Savior Jesus. Powerful words from a powerful apostle about a powerful truth. Let's put them back up one more time. The way that we never stumble. Remember what God has given us. Remember what we are to add. Remember what happens when these things abound in our lives. Remember to make our call and election sure. To remember that there's an abundant entrance that waits for us to reach for it. To be reminded of these things often, even though we know them, recalling that we have eyewitness testimony in this, the living word, that reminds us we're always to listen to Jesus. Just listening to Jesus. I think that's plenty to chew on and enough for us today. Let's ask him to speak. In the week ahead, let's ask him to make his voice clear to us in the week ahead. Will you join me in a word of prayer? (laughs) Heavenly Father, as we close our time together this morning, gathered as a body of believers under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, opening our hearts and our ears and our eyes to your word and listening to your servant Peter as he he invites every believer into a life that isn't continually stumbling, 
in the same way or at length. That each one of us here, Lord, this morning, one day we may enter heaven as if we are a believer in Christ. And when we enter those gates, oh, the joy of those who have gone before us. And may our entrance be an abundant one, oh God. Oh, it's not as though we all haven't made some mistakes along the way. But your grace, oh, your grace is greater. Grace that is greater than all of my sin, as the old hymn says. We love you, Lord. And we want to listen to you. Speak to us, your people, all this week. Unstop our ears, O oh God, that we might know what you're saying. In Jesus' name. We pray in Jesus' name.